0: want to church, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for these weeks every year to remember the greatest gift the world has ever known, and we recognize before you this morning, Father, that that Christ in our darkness likely was the gift that we did not want, and yet he was the, the precise gift that we needed, and we're so grateful that you gave him to us. We're so thankful, Father, that He was not only born, but that He was born to die, that He did die, and that He rose from the dead so that we might live in Him. And we pray, Father, that as we open the Scriptures together this morning, that we would revel anew in things that we are familiar with, that we might be able to slow down a bit in this month of the year that is perhaps the busiest month of the year, that we'd be able to slow down and truly enjoy the truth of the coming of Christ, who was born to die and to live again for us. We pray these things in His name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, this morning we'll be, we'll be looking at the first chapter of Matthew, and Saturday on Christmas Eve we'll be looking at the first half of chapter 2, and then next Sunday, or it's Christmas Day, we'll be looking at the second half of Matthew chapter 2. So as you're finding your place in Matthew 1, if you would stand with me, and to begin we're just going to read the first 17 verses. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Akim. And Akim, the father of Aliud and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You may be seated. My grandmother was uniquely gifted in that she could discern precisely what I did not want for Christmas so that she could buy it and give it to me for Christmas. She was so gifted that she was able to even give me things that it would never occur to me to not want unless she had given them to me. For example, when I was in the first grade, we're sitting all together, the extended family, on Christmas Eve, opening presents, and I'm opening her present, and I'm looking at it. Wow, I, I didn't even know I didn't want a hairdryer. But now I know. Thanks, Mama. But that same night, just a few moments later, my uncle handed me a a tiny little box. And that's generally not a good thing to a seven-year-old, the little box. And I'm wondering, was this jewelry? Did Mama put you up to this? But I opened the box, and in this box, I can hardly believe my eyes. As I'm looking at this thing, my uncle says, Every boy needs a pocket knife. Now, I had no experience with this kind of thing, but that just sounded, it felt true. And over the next few days, it proved to be true. Because I found about 20 times a day, found myself in situations where I I had no choice but to take that knife out and go to work on something. And I was thinking, how how did I survive all these seven years without this thing? Has, Has anybody ever received a gift That they either didn't want or didn't know they needed. Anybody? That is exactly the situation that the Jews were in at the first Christmas. The Jews wanted a Savior, but not the kind of Savior that Jesus turned out to be. They thought that their biggest problem was Rome, and so they wanted a military Messiah to conquer their foreign oppressor, lead them to political freedom. But Jesus wasn't what they wanted. And what He said about what they really needed was so offensive to them that they murdered Him. Now Matthew is writing this Gospel after the fact to persuade the Jews that Jesus, while He may not have been the Messiah that they wanted, he actually was the Messiah that they needed. And this first chapter makes the case that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah that you desperately need. So, so bow down to Him and surrender all to Him. And I, I'm guessing that in this church, if I were to ask, if I were to ask you, what is your greatest need I think that many, if not most, would give the right theological answer. Jesus, or I, 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 need, I need fellowship with God through Jesus. I think most probably would say something like that. But, but, but isn't it the case that it is, it is very easy to live day to day as if something else is our greatest need? To take legitimate needs, things that, things that actually are problems, but to elevate them to ultimate status such that our greatest need fades from view. I, I just, I need to pay these bills somehow. I need to make amends with that person. I need that person to change. Somehow these circumstances must work out differently. If this problem, if that problem were just solved. Everything would be right. And in the context of these felt needs, life, life can seem so bleak. What a great occasion then to slow down and consider Matthew chapter 1, which brings wonderful perspective to us. Not, not just to minimize these very real problems in our lives, but to maximize Christ To maximize the Father who sent him to us, to remind us that we still need him above all. Matthew tells us here who Jesus is, and he simultaneously tells us why we need him more than anything. First, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the Messiah by virtue of his human lineage he is the Messiah by virtue of his human lineage So let's read the first verse again the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David son of Abraham So Matthew tells us in the very first verse that Jesus is the Messiah he calls him Jesus Christ we forget that Christ is a title it is not a last name and by merely telling us who this book is about, Matthew has told us his thesis for this gospel. He also calls Jesus the son of David. In, in 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise to David to give him a son who would be king forever. And as we continue through the Bible, we find in the Psalms and the prophets that that promise to David came to be attached to a hope of a coming Messiah. And so, in calling Jesus by that title, Son of David, Matthew is announcing once again in one verse Israel, here is your Messiah. Here is the Son of David. And Matthew then goes on to call Jesus the Son of Abraham, taking us back even further in the history of the Bible to Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 18, chapter 22, where God promised. Abraham, a seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so in calling Jesus the son of Abraham, Matthew announces to the nations, Here is your hope. But look at the first several words again. The book of the genealogy. Those words are intended to introduce the next 17 verses which named generation after generation of Jesus' ancestors. His his family tree, Matthew lays before us. Now, what could be the point of that? Well, it could be that Matthew wants to trace from Abraham through David to Jesus to show that Jesus really is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And certainly that that may be a point. But there's more. Not only is Christ the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, but Matthew is showing us that Jesus is a man. His humanity is stressed in that His family tree here is presented in very human terms. Jesus is human. But there's even more than that. Matthew uses this genealogy to show the Jews what their real problem is. Likely, we all have a few individuals in our family line that we'd rather not claim. I, I have a feeling that if you were tracing your family tree for someone, you'd probably highlight the Thomas Edisons or the, the Abraham Lincolns, the Jackie Robinsons. You'd probably shy away from the, the Benedict Arnold's, the Charlie Manson's, the Jeffrey Epstein's. You'd, you'd leave out... The undesirables, right? You don't highlight those. You you conveniently forget those. Well, Jesus has more than a few undesirables in His family tree. And consider this. it, it, It was common among the Jews in laying out these genealogies to leave names out of them. This is a common thing. In fact, if you were to compare this genealogy of Christ with the genealogies in the Old Testament, you'll find a great name's left out of this genealogy. That's normal. You just hit the high points. And so if Matthew is simply trying to make the case that Jesus is the seed of Abraham and the seed of David, then it would be very natural for him, it would be normal and no one would fault him for leaving out the undesirables. But he does not do that Rather, it seems that in tracing Jesus' lineage, He highlights them. He actually calls our attention to the undesirables. Almost every other line features the who's who of Old Testament moral repugnance and idolatry. I don't have time to point out all of them, but let's not miss verse 3. Verse 3, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, even if you don't know that story, it stands out because it breaks the pattern by mentioning the mother by Tamar. Now, that should be a clue that, hey, we might want to go look back to the Old Testament, find out what's going on here, because he signaled here. There's something interesting here. I want you to look into this because I'm mentioning the mother. Now, those of you who know this story, you may know that this is found in Genesis chapter 38. If you're taking notes, Highly encourage you to read this story. Genesis 38. I almost need a whiteboard up here to diagram for you how this thing went down. Perez and Zerah were not Judah's first sons. And Tamar was not his wife. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. The wife of his son Ur. Well, Ur was so evil that God killed him before he had had a chance to procreate with Tamar. And so Judah told his second son, Onan, to go into Tamar to father a son on his brother's behalf. But Onan circumvented the process, to put it delicately, and so God killed him too. To make a long story short, Tamar did eventually conceive, but she conceived by deceiving her father-in-law Judah, by disguising herself as a prostitute, whom he took the liberty of patronizing. And the offspring of that encounter were these twins, Perez and Zerah, such that Judah was not only their father, but also in a twisted sense, their grandfather by leveret marriage. It's one of the more bizarre episodes in the Old Testament, and Matthew doesn't want us to miss it. Saying, hey everybody, Remember this? Remember that dark story in Genesis 38? That's Jesus' family. Wow. Now, skip down to verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. What a strange way to put that. By By this point in the genealogy, several women have been mentioned, so... It would not have been strange just to mention Bathsheba by name. But Matthew doesn't do that. He calls her the wife of Uriah. And what is it that Matthew wants his his readers to recall then? What what he wants his readers to recall is, and David um, David was the father of Solomon by a woman with whom he previously committed adultery and covered up that adultery by murdering her husband Uriah. Once again, hey everybody, remember that dark story in the Old Testament? That's Jesus' family. In the following verses we have this line of kings of Judah, almost half of whom are explicitly described as evil in the Old Testament. For the sake of time, I can't talk about all of them. I encourage you to look up Abijah, Joram, Ahaz, Amos, which is just another spelling or another, another name for Ammon, and look up Jeconiah. Just look up those guys to see what the Old Testament has to say about them. Just to give you a taste, though, I am going to tell you what 2 Kings 21 says about Manasseh. This is from 2 Kings 21 about Manasseh. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, worshipped all the host of heaven and served them, He built altars for all the host of heaven in the the two courts of the house of the Lord. He burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he led the people astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. This is Jesus' family tree. And then Matthew mentions the deportation to, de- deportation to Babylon in verse 11, reminding the reader that the people as a whole, they had turned their back on God to the extent that He gave them over to their enemies, the Babylonians. I mean, This is amazing. The Messiah Jesus, He comes from a long line of usurpers, liars, thieves, fornicators, prostitutes, adulterers, murderers, idol worshippers, and apostates. And Matthew doesn't begrudgingly admit this. He offers it. He, He wants this to be known. But the question is, why? Why, in making the case that Jesus is the Christ, would He include the worst of the worst in Jesus' family tree? I would suggest to you that there are two reasons. And Matthew highlights these undesirables. First, the not-so-subtle message to the Jewish listener was, this is not just Jesus' family tree. It's yours. These are your people. You've got a problem, and it's not Rome. As Matthew relates Jesus' lineage, he simultaneously reminds the Jews of their sordid history of sin. A history in which They did not get better over time, but they got worse. And if you follow the storyline in the genealogy, you also see the severity, the increasing severity of the wrath of God against them. God chastened Judah and He chastened David. And as the kings of Judah got worse, God gave them over more and more to their enemies to the point of the deportation and eventually subjugation under the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians the Greeks, and now the Romans. And so their biggest problem is not Rome. It is the fact that they are at enmity with God because of their sin. So as Matthew tells the Jews who Jesus is, he exposes why they need him, why they need the kind of Messiah that he is. But there's There's a second reason for including all these blemishes in the family tree. The Messiah had to be a man. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 tells us that God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And this, this, this genealogy, it shows us that Jesus came from a long line of sinners. Not that He was a sinner, but that these sinners were His people. He was of them. He was a man born into a sinful world in profound need of saving. All all of that begins to give some helpful perspective. Perhaps begins to give some helpful perspective to us. I've got problems. They are not as bad as my worst problem. And it appears that the Messiah stepped into this mess of humanity in such a way as to address the worst of problems. So what does this genealogy tell us? Jesus is the Messiah by virtue of His human lineage, and it begins to tell us why we need Him. Second, Jesus is the Messiah by virtue of His divine birth. He is the Messiah by virtue of His divine birth. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, a, a Hebrew marriage had two phases, a betrothal period and the marriage ceremony. So a contract was made between the families of the bride and the groom, which was legally binding, so that then they were engaged. That's, that sets up the betrothal period. So during the betrothal period, they were considered legally married. They were called husband and wife, even though the marriage ceremony hadn't taken place, and even though they had not consummated the marriage. For that reason, the breaking of a betrothal required a legal divorce. And the phrase in verse 18, before they came together, indicates that Mary and Joseph they had not yet consummated this marriage. So Matthew is highlighting for the reader that this took place while Mary was a virgin, which emphasizes the purity of her womb and the absolute impossibility that Jesus' conception was natural, which points to an important piece of New Testament theology, which is this, that the revelation of the Son is the domain of the Holy Spirit. The revelation of the Son is the domain of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit imparted the holy seed into the womb of Mary. He created genetic code ex nihilo, out of nothing. Similarly, at Christ's baptism, the Spirit descended as a dove upon Him, identifying Jesus as the Son of God. It is the Domain of the Spirit of God to reveal the Son of God. And so this begins to answer the question, who is Jesus' Father? Not a human. He was conceived by the Spirit of God. More on that in a minute. But Joseph Joseph has a problem. Look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, Resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph has two competing impulses here. He is a just man, a righteous man, and so he knows that by law Mary should be exposed as an adulteress and made to pay the penalty of being stoned to death according to Deuteronomy 22. At the same time, he wants to extend mercy to her. Now, don't miss the significance of this dilemma. This is a wonderful thing. Joseph is compelled to simultaneously seek both justice and mercy. And interpreters get tripped up over this. They say, how how can Joseph be righteous and not want to put her to shame? Well, that's exactly the point. Joseph can't resolve that tension. And so he goes with a sort of compromise. He purposes to divorce her quietly. We might say that Joseph intends to compromise justice. Now, all, all of salvation history demonstrates those same desires in the heart of God. God is just, and as such, He must bring justice upon the sinner. Simultaneously, His compassion moves him to show mercy to the sinner. But there is is an enormous difference between Joseph and God here. When, When Joseph looks upon Mary and her swollen womb, he sees the source of his dilemma. But as God looks upon Mary and her swollen womb, he sees the solution to the dilemma. For in that womb is the one through whom God will be shown just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So God resolves this tension for Joseph with this spectacular revelation. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Why? That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You can be just and take her as your wife. And the implication is here that that he should take her as his wife. In fact, by virtue of the marriage contract, he must. if If he is just, he must take her as his wife because she has been faithful to him. So first, the angel reveals the source of the conception. Next, he reveals the fruit of it. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. She will bear a son and you, in the original language, that's a a masculine singular you, you shall call his name Jesus. The naming of a son was the prerogative of the father. And so here it's implied to Joseph that he will raise this child as his own. That name is significant, Jesus. Our our word Jesus comes from the Hebrew word for Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So, So think about what's being said here in this verse. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Yahweh saves because he will save his people from his sins, from their sins. Do you see the significance? His name is Yahweh saves because he will save them. What does that mean? It means that this baby is Yahweh. His name is going to be Yahweh saves, because he is going to save his people from their sins. This birth narrative is establishing Christ's divinity. And when we understand that, the rest of this sentence takes on new meaning. We've already seen that the genealogy establishes Christ's humanity. This birth narrative establishes His divinity. And because of those two things, the prediction that He will save His people from their sins has, has fuller meaning. He, God, will save His people from their sins. The God who chose them from among all the nations of the earth to be a people for His own glory. The God who simultaneously represented justice and mercy to them. The God who saved them in the wilderness and in so many other occasions in the Old Testament. He will save His people from their sins. And He, the man, will save His people from their sins. His people. The the people in his family tree that Matthew has just outlined. These are his people. The people that he will dress like and talk like and live like and eat like. The people of whom he will be one. He will save his people from their sins. That genealogy shows the reader. You've got a problem and it's not Rome. Your problem is is the righteous wrath of God over your sin. And this Messiah is no political Messiah. He's no mere military man who will save you from a mere man Caesar. But this is a God, man, Messiah who will save you from your sin. And so all the centuries of depravity represented in that genealogy here, all the pain, the guilt, suffering, darkness, damnation, sin, He will save them from all of that. This may not be the Messiah that you wanted, but He is the Messiah that you need. And in that, Matthew makes this final point. Jesus is the Messiah by virtue of His saving work. Jesus is the Messiah by virtue of His saving work. Can you imagine how Joseph's heart must have swelled at hearing these things? Not only has has Mary been faithful, but more than that, in her womb, she carries God Almighty in human form. And God Himself has called Joseph to raise that child as His own. And even more than that, salvation has come. He will save His people from their sins. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I I suggest to you that Matthew arranged the contents of this chapter to coincide with the meaning of the name Emmanuel. Our English translations say which means God with us. And that that is true, but it reverses the word order. Typically, that's fine because that's how we talk. We typically will put the noun first and, and the prepositional phrase after it. But here the word order is important. Emmanuel is actually a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word imanu means with us, el, God, with us, God. And the Greek text of of this chapter, this verse, it preserves that word order. So, So this verse, verse 22, says, which means with us, God. What Matthew is saying is that all of this, all of this, all, all, all the things related here—the genealogy and, and the events surrounding Christ's birth—the whole of it happened to to fulfill the promise of the coming of this with us, God. The genealogy, the birth narrative, with us, God. He is Emmanuel. The genealogy gave us His humanity. With us, it, it signifies more than just proximity. It also signifies progeny. He he is with us in that He is one of us. He is a man. We are His people. And that birth story gave us His divinity. He is God. And these things together tell us He will save His people from their sins. Only a man who is God could do it. And only God who is a man could do it. The with us God. Verse 24, look there with me. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Yahweh saves. Jesus is the Messiah. This text is tells us He will save His people from their sins. The question is then, who are His people? Does Christ save everyone from their sins? We won't take time to walk through the entire rest of the book of Matthew. The last time we did this, it took seven years. But the rest of the book of Matthew demonstrates that they enter the kingdom of heaven who repent of their sin, surrendering everything they are to Christ as Lord, trusting in his death and resurrection alone to save them from their sin. Jesus saves his people from their sin by, dying, by paying their penalty on the cross That's why God was able to resolve the tension between justice and mercy in a way that Joseph couldn't. God was just by punishing Christ for sin in our place. And because He punished sin that way, He is righteous in forgiving us. Us, we who repent of our sin and trust in Him. Those who do not repent and trust in Christ to save them they will pay the penalty for their own sin for all eternity. If you have not repented and trusted in Christ, God's Word calls you this morning to recognize that you are a sinner under the wrath of God and Jesus Christ is the Messiah that you need. Without Him, you are doomed. But if you repent and trust Him, You will be saved. He saves His people from their sins. The Jews wanted a particular kind of Messiah because they misunderstood their greatest problem to be Rome. And many today want a Messiah in accordance with what they understand to be their biggest problem. Take a look at anyone What they are chasing with their life is their Messiah. And that person or thing that is their Messiah, they understand that person or thing to be their Messiah because they think that Messiah addresses their deepest need. And what that means is that being wrong about what is our deepest need is a terrible error because it leads us to chase after false messiahs such that we reject the one true Messiah. Our secondary, our tertiary problems that we face, though they are very real, they all stem from entrance of sin into the world. And so, tragically and ironically, when we chase false messiahs, We abandon the true Messiah who alone addresses our greatest problem and by extension all others. Many of you repented and trusted in Christ long ago, but you find yourself in these days tempted to trust false messiahs in your everyday life. This text sits before you the truth. Jesus is still the Messiah that you need. If the with us God could be trusted to save you from your sins, He can be trusted with all else. As we close, just consider what a glorious thing it is that God gave us a gift that we did not want. What a glorious thing it is that He gave us the gift that we needed. What a glorious thing that He gave us, Jesus. Let us trust Him. and Let us worship Him. And let us pray. Father, as we draw closer to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and perhaps still have much busyness between us and those days of celebration, we pray that these truths would be pressed deep into our minds and hearts, that even as in our busyness we are beset by many struggles, that we would be reminded that you have given us the greatest gift possible, a gift that in our lostness we did not want, we didn't know that we needed. And because of that great gift, our greatest problem has been addressed with great finality. Help us to pause and think about these things and rejoice and worship him. And when we are tempted to fret about lesser though real things, move us, Father, to trust Christ, to trust you, a God who would give him to us. We pray for those among us, Lord, who who may be still bearing the weight of their own sin, who have not repented and trusted in Jesus. We pray, Father, that today would be the day that in these next moments you would be gracious to them by granting them to feel the full weight of their sin, the full weight of impending wrath for that sin, that they might see the beauty of Christ, that He is the only hope for their salvation, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Him alone to save them, that they might be saved, And so rejoice in Christ this Christmas for the first time. Please grant us all to worship this Christmas. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.